Welcome to Talking Kotlin. On this episode, I'm sitting down with my good friend, Christina Lee. Hey, Christina. Hi there. And we're not talking Kotlin. No, we're not. Well, we kind of are, right? It's, it's related. It's related. I mean, I once saw a cat cross the road, and I swear it had a little collar saying Kotlin. We can't talk <laughs> about that. When I, I think we should, though. When I created this podcast, I said it's not going to be just about Kotlin. It'll be anything related to Kotlin, right? Uh, it sounds like a valiant plan to me. I'm willing to talk about cats as well. Okay, there you go. I mean, I've been talking about the weather so many times recently, and I'm like, <laughs> why can't I talk about cats a little bit? Although I'm not a big fan of cats. I'm more dogs. But anyway, we're not talking cats and dogs, <laughs> right? <laughs> it would be our best lives, though. It would be. So we, we shouldn't rule it out, but today we're not. Today we're not. Today we're going to talk about something related to Kotlin. And in yes. particular, it's related to Kotlin because uh, you and I are both on the program committee for KotlinConf. KotlinConf! Yeah, I know. Oh my God, it was so cool. It's like we, we released the tickets the other day. We sold out like super I... early bird in 50 minutes, early bird in five minutes. Yeah, I saw that. And you know what I was thinking? I was like, this is how lotteries happen. You know that this is how like both Google I.O. and DubDub ended up with the lottery system because you release them and like five minutes later they sell out. It was awesome. It's so great. From some on one side, I want to that would be awesome. On, from the other side, I don't know if that's like the best thing, you know, because I would love to kind of put on a show where everyone could attend. Right. Oh, totally. As an attendee, the lottery is awful. I don't I don't like gambling, but as an as a conference person, it's really great to see the demand there. It means that you're putting something out there that people want. Yeah. So it's nice. And and I, we really appreciate the support. So related to Kotlin Conf, you and I are both on the program committee. And we last year, and I know that we've had a few people like on Twitter pop up and in different places, always talking about like, you know, oh, my submission has been rejected or I don't know how to submit a good yeah. proposal. And we said, why don't we just like, put on a show about this where you and I can just chat about cats, dogs, and... <laughs> and maybe CFPs. And there you go. CFP stands for Call, Call for, for Papers. Paper. Sorry, I was just kind of being a dictionary of acronyms. <laughs> Were you thinking of what it actually stood for? I felt like there was a pause there. I was like, do you do you remember? Yeah, yeah. I just... <laughs> oh, God. Anyway, um... So, why W-Y-D-T? No, what? Okay, yeah, what do you, what do you think? Hey, Christina, so, welcome <laughs> to Talking Kotlin. On this, <laughs> okay, we will stop and we will stop, right. So, we're talking about call for papers and, yes. and how to submit a, a good abstract, right? Yes. So, take it away. Oh, I have to freestyle about submitting good abstracts? Whew. Uh, I'm well, holding my laughter here. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I was born like to Like putting you on the spot, right? <laughs> uh, I mean, I think we can probably start with, with titles because they make a big difference. We can probably work our way down from there. But I, I do think that one thing we've both noticed is that we get a lot of talks 
a, a lot, a lot of talks. And when we're going through them, we're often going through, uh, you know, several dozen at a time. And one thing that can make a difference is giving people a title that's descriptive. So if you are talking about something in the standard library and you say your title is standard library, what that leaves us with is what is your angle on that talk? And if we can't find it and we need to go searching for it somewhere in the abstract, it just makes life a little more difficult and you run the risk of us not finding it in the rest of your abstract and then wondering what is the angle here and what do people what will they take away from this? And so it's a very simple thing. It doesn't need to be clever, but I think having descriptive titles are really step zero for having a good CFP. Yeah. And Would you agree? Totally. And I, I, you know, it's, we should point out that you wouldn't ever say, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. And we're definitely not judging a talk by its title. Totally. But it is the first impression, right? And yes. and when you're looking at, I mean, I think last year we got something close to like 400. Um, yes. This year we're already over 100. And you know that, you know, the call for papers, everyone like waits till the last week to submit everything. Of course, it's tradition. Yeah, I know. It's like, why do it now when you can do it mañana, right? I'm from Spain. Like, this is inherent. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, um, like the when you're looking at a whole list of abstracts, the first thing that's going to stand out is the title, right? Absolutely. So yes, good title, starting point. And while clever titles, because you did say like a clever title, but I think we're past the phase where you don't have to replace everything that sounds like a K <laughs> with a K. Yeah, so if you're going to write a title that has all of the C's uh, replaced with K's, just know that Hadi will cringe inside every time. <laughs> well, that's not fair. I think we all cringe a little bit. Well, that's true, too. <laughs> I I think we have uh, a lot of people who really adore proper grammar and spelling. And um, it, it always makes me laugh because uh, I think people's creativity can sometimes... Uh, butt up against that love for grammar and spelling. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like every time I got to go to these uh, things, it's like, uh, you know, been there, done that, got the K shirt. Yes, <laughs> we have read a lot of a lot of sentences and paragraphs where there were no C's yes. involved. Yeah. <laughs> and we're very, and, very well practiced. And for the record, that doesn't mean that you replace your K's with C's. We just don't do the C's with K's. Um, then, Let's just treat all letters fairly. I yeah. think that's a good standard. So after the title, of course, comes the actual abstract, right? And yeah. some of the things that we noticed, for instance, was one-liners. Yes. You know, do you remember the number of uh, submissions that we had was which was like basically one sentence or two sentences, and one of them was the repeat of the title. Right. Yeah, I can't even count how many times um, we we read through that. And and the problem is not with brevity. The problem is is that we have not yet figured out how to read minds. I'm I'm working on it, but unfortunately, um, within a single sentence, it's very difficult to get all of the information across that we need to understand what your talk will be about. And so the problem with one-liners is not we're implementing a minimum required for how long your CFP is. It's just 
it would be very, very, very difficult to convey all the information you need in a single sentence. So it's probably a sign that you haven't yet uh, conveyed the information that that people need to evaluate your talk. Yeah. And again, the flip side of that is that we don't want like six paragraphs like you don't have to send because there are actually some conferences, especially in the academic world where you have to actually submit more or less a paper along with your actual talk, right? Yes, yes. So not go to that extreme either, but I would say like a couple of paragraphs. Yeah, I I think a lot of successful people or uh, not successful people, that's not what I meant, but people who submit successfully to a call for papers often fall in between one long paragraph and two medium ones. Is that your sense as well? Yeah, pretty much. Like you don't want to get, again, take into account that normally on these things, there are multiple people that have to go through 300, 400. And and we're lucky. Like, you know, I have friends of mine that are involved in other conferences that are reading through 1000 abstracts. Right. Yeah. And if each abstract is a page long, it's just way too long. Right. Absolutely. So that's another thing that you want to kind of try and uh, make it the right size. Whatever that right size is, is kind of difficult, I guess. But you could kind of say there's two paragraphs and don't ask how long is a paragraph. How long is a paragraph? (laughs) Five to eight sentences. We're just going to if we're going to go with arbitrariness. But no, I I agree. There's there's no one right length per paragraph. So it's kind of uh, up to whoever's writing it to determine what they want a paragraph to be, whether they want to put that all in one or split it out. Um, It really doesn't matter, but I do think that that's a pretty good, people have a general sense of what a paragraph or two paragraphs is in length, and that's a pretty good guideline for, uh, do I, have I given myself enough room to explain this thoroughly without going into every detail of the talk? Because that's what we as people looking at the CFPs want. We want the ability to understand where you want to take this talk and what what your plans are are for it. But we don't need the whole talk um, or, you know, like bullet points of, of all of the different things that will be on the slides. Although I, I always appreciate the people who have put in, put in the work for that, but it's not a requirement for submitting. And that takes us to another point what should these paragraphs contain like what are we and and let's think not only about those that are as part of the program committee deciding whether they want to accept a talk or not but you know a lot of these abstracts end up published on the website so you have to look at it from the perspective of the attendee right and what what is it that the attendee or the program committee wants to get from your abstract That's a really hard one. And I'm probably the worst person to answer it because I haven't been attending as many conferences as I have been going to speak at conferences. But when I put myself in the shoes of being there, I've given my talk and now I'm considering which other talks to go to. I think that there there is a baseline where if someone has written a very cohesive CFP that's spelling and grammar or grammar mistakes free I always think okay you know I bet they'll do the same with the slides I bet they'll really 
engineer their slides and, and make them good. And so that's kind of my base evaluation. But after that, when it comes to content, I think for me, it's often have I struggled with this? Because if they're going to talk on a topic that I've struggled with and they say, hey, XYZ topic is difficult for this reason, um, I'm going to present ways to overcome it. I think that those types of topics are really fascinating to me because I'll get to gut check whether the solution that I, I had was correct, whether there are other ones to go with, or also if I haven't solved it, I'll hope that I'm going to go there um, and, and get some solutions. And then I also think that I'm particularly compelled to go to talks in areas that I have not yet explored because I want, like, we don't want every talk to be an overview talk or a beginner talk, but when new technologies come out and I haven't yet explored them, I love attending a talk just to get my feet wet and to hear kind of like the easy on-ramp. Like I'm not going to go and start using whatever that is immediately. I would need to do my own research from there. But I love those talks that just say, okay, for instance, the, the co-routines talk um, from Kotlin Conf two years ago where it was just, here's what they are, here's how they work, here's why you would want them. Oh, I love talks like that. Yeah, but I think one of the key things that you said uh, was, what am I going to get out of it, right? And, yeah. you know, I think that that, for me at least, it's always important that from, both from an attendee, like when I'm reading the call for papers submissions, I'm looking at it really from one side from the attendee's perspective, right? Yes. And of course, from the other side is, okay, how many talks do we have about X? Should we balance this out, et cetera, et cetera, right? So from the organizer perspective. But yes. from the attendee perspective, it's really important to communicate in the abstract what is it that they're going to walk away with, right? Absolutely. What is it, What you know, what is their interest in coming and spending an hour or 40 minutes of their time to your talk? Tell them what they're going to walk out with. I think that that's very important in an abstract. Oh, I agree. And I, I think that's uh, more obvious for new technologies. So if people haven't worked with a new technology and you say, like, I'm going to teach people about coroutines, going back to that example. But a lot of things that people talk about are not new technologies. And the value proposition of that is not nearly as clear. So I absolutely agree that for, for talks where it's a case study or for talks where you had a problem and you solved it with Kotlin, being very explicit about what someone can hope to walk away with is is just extremely valuable because we do get so many talks that are in similar veins um, that it's it's really a good way to differentiate your CFP from the other ones that we're receiving that are also case studies or also ways that people solved um, you know XYZ problem. It can really set the CFP apart if you have a clear articulation of when people come to my I talk this is what they'll learn yeah and this also leads to the aspect of should my talk be always about my experience or not and i mm. think that a lot of people here kind of have this internal conflict of okay i'm gonna go and talk give a talk about let's say i don't know the standard library or, or co-routines yes so how what, what what should I submit? Should I submit a talk about, you know, how co what coroutines are, how they work? Here's some examples. Or would the organizers value more 
you know, hands-on experience with coroutines and what my experience was with it. Yeah, I I hope that I project this onto you right, but it's been my experience that because we often have people who are working on features give talks and because we have so many people submitting, the uh, intro and overview talks are very saturated. We don't often um like we don't have the bandwidth to accept a lot of them and if there's going to be an intro talk if you look back at past kotlin comps it's often given by the person who's actually written that feature of the language so it's a very very difficult type of cfp to get accepted into kotlin comp for those those two reasons would would you say that that's true did i accurately sum up the the conference committee's opinion (laughs) Oh, now you're putting me on the spot, huh? I know. Thank you. <laughs> Fair play. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, l- let me step outside of KotlinCon for a second. Um, we're yes. talking. We're talking call for papers today. I would generally say that I think both types of submissions have their value, and I think yeah. that you know people shouldn't shy away from the the idea that every talk has to be about my experience. I know that a lot of feedback that some speakers get or and, and conferences get that it's like, oh, well, they just came and told me about what could be read online. Sure, but you know, you could apply the same thing to teaching kids at the, in, in this day of age, right? You know, why yeah. go to school? It's all online. So I think that there is still the aspect that there are people that teach very well. There are people that know how to communicate very well. And even giving introductory talks around the specific topic is valuable. So I wouldn't say that because, you know, the flip side is, again, and I keep saying flip side, I'm sorry. The opposite is you can have very good developers working on a feature that suck at communicating and suck at giving oh, presentation, absolutely. right? Absolutely. So I, and to a certain extent, I would kind of, um, and I'm not offending anyone from the, the Kotlin team, please saying that you know i mean in all fairness i'm sure that there's 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 better presenters and non-better presenters just like everything uh but i'm like i wouldn't completely shy away from this idea of don't ever present any topics that are expat explaining some technology and in fact like we had uh venkat give a talk about yes. what is called the uh, co-routines right yes uh i also feel there's the aspect of what we know as the curse of knowledge, right? Which is, you know, a lot of us think that, well, this is basic. We know it. And, or or we, we assume that everyone else knows it. But it's not only about knowing it or assuming others know it, but it's very difficult for us to actually uh, explain something that for us is second nature, right? Yes. You know? Absolutely. And that is also brings the, the perspective of, an outsider, an outsider or anyone that says, okay, well, let me look at this from a newbie point of view. I mean, the number of times that I have given talks and even workshops at times at at a conference about a technology that, you know, I've been learning or playing with for a year, not more, right? Mm -hmm. And, And I feel that that aspect of bringing in the, you know, the newbie aspect of it, the this is my journey in learning X and Y, let me share it with you, is still valuable. Oh, absolutely. And to be honest, I think I just showed my, uh, like, I think 
you gave great advice about how to do CFPs and what type of content is is worthwhile. And I gave my gaming advice, my strategic, like, do you want to increase the odds that your CFP will get accepted? Follow these five simple steps. (laughs) (laughs) Which... And it's completely, completely valid, right? Because that that is the, I mean, this is what we're trying to talk about as well, right? What are the chances to increase? Because, and you're completely right. It's like, yes, both are valid points. And and what you're saying is we're going to get a lot of submissions of this type. So many. In past years, we've had had a lot. Um, But I want to echo what you said, which is that I love beginner talks. Uh, I, I shouldn't even say beginner. I love overview talks. They're some of my favorite. I have benefited greatly from them. And actually, I think still to this day, one of the talks that is uh, most like revived that I've given was an intro to RX that I gave like four years ago or something. And that talk circles back around the internet every few months and I get emails about it in a way that I've never had for any of my other talks. So I like gave it and then just didn't think anything of it. And people still email me saying like, oh my goodness, thank you so much for this talk. And so I think the impact that you can have with some of those overview and intro talks is just phenomenal phenomenal and beyond your your wildest dreams but I would echo uh, where I started which is that there are a lot of people learning new technologies at any given time so it does mean that if you're going to submit in that vein you probably also will have to uh, kind of outmaneuver CFPs from half a dozen other people submitting on a similar topic Absolutely. so the topic is completely valid and and we love those topics but it will make the energy hill of getting accepted a little bit more difficult yeah so basically to everyone listening ignore everything i said listen to christina (laughs) you know what i'm done bye (laughs) no but you're you're giving the great advice and i'm giving the like the practical one no no you're you're giving advice and i'm giving good yes that that's what you were trying to say i i said it for you Right. Oh god. No, but it's true. It, it, it's totally true. Like you completely you're on, on point and absolutely right that the I I your to get your chances higher of being accepted take the points you set into account. Yeah. And going back, we actually started, you started this with a question about those overview talks versus personal experience. And I wanted to circle back on that because personal experience as a topic for talks, I think is incredibly valuable, especially if you are in um, a company where other people cannot easily have that experience themselves. So the the prime example that comes to mind is, are you working at a scale that other people can't just pop into and experience? Like, are you shipping to hundreds of millions of users? That's not something that someone can get uh, a hankering to learn and just ship an app to 200 million users and teach themselves about. So when we talk about personal experience, I think those things are incredibly valuable because you give people a window into a world that they may not easily be able to to go into themselves. But my caution there is that a lot of people um, will focus on the uniqueness of their situation 
But the true treasure of having a unique situation is how you can relate it out to other people's situations. So it's one thing to say, I work uh, in this environment and I've learned X, Y, Z things. And it's another to say, I work in this environment and here are key takeaways that I've found that can also apply to other people who work in similar environments. Yes, very good point. And, and which goes back to what is the value that I'm going to get out of it um, as an attendee, yes. right? And sometimes, of course, you can even extrapolate that uh, to other scenarios, right? Like, you know, I've worked in an environment where I've had to de deal with uh, sc scalability, uh, but the lessons I've learned can be applied to dealing with, I don't know, whatever other thing, right? At, at the end of the Absolutely. day. Absolutely. Yeah. Now, talking about case studies, because we also kind of ask for this uh, on the submissions website. And, and that's one tip that I would recommend people. Please, when you go to the sessionize.com slash KotlinConf, where it says call for papers, we really put a lot of effort into writing a few paragraphs of what we're looking for, title, abstract, etc. So really, yeah. please do read that because it does contain valuable information. Um, yep. And one of those things that we're talking about that we'd be interested in are case studies, right? But yeah. again, with case studies, we can get a lot of submissions. So what do we want to watch out for? Or, or what should we be looking at submitting to get our chances up? Was that a question for me? Yes. Because you give <laughs> okay. way better advice than I do. So... <laughs> I give the cynical advice. I'm sorry. Um, okay, for case studies, well, I it's hard for me to, I think because I just was talking about how to make things applicable to other people, my mind is still in that track. But for me, I really do think that that's my biggest bugaboo about case studies, which is that if you tell me your company is doing something interesting in Kotlin, this is great as a first step. But it's really, uh, for me, as someone reviewing it, not enough unless you also follow up with step two, which is why is knowing that valuable? So if you're working on a, a DSL within your company and it's really cool, me as a person, as an intellectual person, I want to hear about it just because it sounds interesting. But as someone who's looking at the, the value we can provide attendees, my immediate next question is, okay, you're building this DSL. Why did you build it? Uh, did it have business impact? Is this something that is applicable to other businesses? So they can they look at the DSL that you built uh, and make similar cost-benefit trade-offs and maybe adopt it for their case? Those are the sorts of follow-on questions that I have that I think sometimes people um, can leave off because they get so excited about the thing that they're building that they don't always back away and start providing information about the why and the how and the results of it. Yeah. And also, I think in terms of case studies in line with, you know, we adopted Kotlin at our company or how we've moved from Java to Kotlin, those yeah. probably stand a lower chance at this point, right? Because we've had yes. quite a bit of them. So really, it's about what is the uniqueness that your company provides or the experience that you've had. And again, how, as you mentioned, you can project that onto attendees so that they walk away with something that they could use. Yes. Yeah. Like, I mean, I would love to see, for example, case studies around Kotlin native, 
right? Or around oh, absolutely, yeah. Kotlin targeting JavaScript. Uh, you know, things that generally we see less of. That that's definitely areas where we would like to see more submissions, and you probably have a higher chance of it uh, making the cut because you know yeah. we, we don't get that many around that. And just to take a step back, I know this is an episode about CFPs, but to clarify why case studies are important, I think if if you were around during the time where uh, people were still circulating Jake's document evaluating Kotlin, uh, I think that really speaks to the the value that case studies can provide an audience because people were able to see this document about how Square was looking at whether they should use Kotlin or not. And that really influenced how they made their business decisions about whether to use Kotlin or not. And I know from there, when, when we adopted it at Pinterest, I was in meetings all the time with other companies around the Bay Area. And those meetings always centered around how did you make this decision? Uh, do you have any hindsight feedback that you would change, et cetera, et cetera? So these are the sorts of things that would be great to capture in a case study that you give as a talk. Basically, all of these individual meetings between uh, companies where they're trying to learn from each other in order to influence their own decisions on that topic, that's kind of what we want to draw as the value into a case study that someone might present at Kotlin Conf, if that helps you kind of conceptualize what what could be a useful case study submission. Yep. And you ask if I was around, it's well, it's funny. Well, cause I, I, <laughs> that was to the audience. You were definitely around. <laughs> I, I could have just, I, I, I went, you know, when that happened, I, I thought to myself, like, why did I even bother talking about Kotlin for so many years? I could have just shut up and stayed in bed and wait for Jake to write this. And <laughs> it would have had way more effect than I've had in the past four years talking about this stuff, you know? It's wild how much that single document was able to change things for so many companies. And I think it's just one of the best illustrations of why case studies are valuable. Because when people were able to look at the mindset of how another company was structuring their decision, it helped them structure theirs. It's it's a wildly powerful form of communication uh, if it's done right. It's just making sure that you, you do it in a way that's actionable for other companies. Yeah, recently I was talking to uh, Shelby from Intuit and mm -hmm. uh, she's, she's doing Kotlin on the server side with some functional programming mixed in and she was talking about an internal document that they have also which they wrote to try and justify the adoption of Kotlin similar to what Jake wrote. And I asked her, like, are you planning on making this public? Because this really is valuable, right? Yeah. At the end of the day, people eat up this stuff, right? I mean, totally. You know, it's uh, that's a completely different topic of why. But anyway, we're not going to get into that. Yeah, um, we could go back to CFPs, but I wanted, I wanted, I think uh, the CFP category for case studies, I feel like, is a little misunderstood as compared to submitting a CFP for, for overview. So I just wanted to point out that it, it is, in fact, an incredibly powerful uh, form of communication. So I, I would encourage people to submit there with, with that ethos in mind. Yeah. And talking about level, because we've talked about title, we've talked about abstract. What about level? What are we looking for? Well, it's 
like the three little bears. I don't know if that's a story that would translate across cultures, but I think that we don't want too much or too little of any given level. And and so we again, I'm I'm putting on my strategist hat. We as organizers, and I think this is true across all the conferences I'm involved in, have a disproportionate amount of talks submitted to the um intro and uh, intermediate levels, like a lot uh, fall into that bucket. And I find that we maybe get a handful in the more advanced levels. And so as conference organizers, you want there to be a balance so that all different types of people can walk away with content that was satisfying to them. But it means that if you're submitting to the introductory level, your talk has value, but it will also have to go up against a lot of other talks that also have value. So as a as a person, I love introductory talks. As a game strategist, you have a lot more competition. Yeah. <laughs> and again, I don't know if I should say that, but it's just quite frankly the truth across all the conferences I've worked with. Yeah. And I think that I mean I agree generally and even looking at the audience that come to Calling Conf, like there are people that last year we actually didn't ask the the question too accurately. Uh, in terms of like who was really, really new to Kotlin. Uh, but we did have a fair amount of people that hadn't been using Kotlin for more than a year, right? Mm -hmm. So again, it goes back to what we may already assume is general knowledge may not be for many people. So what that means is that don't completely think that anything introductory is disqualified automatically, right? Nope. It, in fact, those are some of the highest ranked talks exactly. in uh, in the last couple of years. Exactly. And it's amazing like what you can do with a talk that might feel even introductory, right? I mean, I can't remember how uh, Huon was talk was classified last year. I think that she had classified it as uh, intro. Uh, I don't remember either. All I know is that it was great. It was great. <laughs> so, so she gave a talk which was a, a whirlwind tour which in her case was a turbo whirlwind tour. Um, someone chasing her. It was so fast. Um, I love her presentation it is. style, though. You will never get bored. I ever. know. Uh, of the standard library. And yep. there was a lot of stuff in there that, you know, some people would say, oh, well, doesn't everyone know this? And it, it got raving reviews and, and the room was packed and people were just you know, desperate to get in there. And then the feedback that she got was great. And so people want this stuff, right? So don't Absolutely. feel like just because it's introductory, it's out the window. Yeah, we if we did not like that, that goes back to um, what I was saying, which is that we need stuff at all levels. So I a, a conference without any talks about um like some of the standard library stuff or things that people might put into the introductory level, I think would not be well balanced and would not be a fun conference to attend. I think it's absolutely vital to to having a good conference to have balance across each of those levels. Yes. And if we didn't want it, we wouldn't add that as an option in the call for papers. 
Yeah. And I, I think I said this earlier in the episode, but those talks are my favorite. So I personally adore them and will be at all of them if you're giving them at Kotlin Conf, as long as, you know, I'm not doing some other responsibility. But but yeah, I do think that uh, it is worth recognizing that the competition for those slots tends to be higher. Um, so strategically do with that what you will. But they are absolutely incredible and valuable talks to give. So I encourage people to submit them. Okay, challenge accepted what we'll do is yeah. we'll make sure that we'll get some introductory talks and we'll put them in parallel and let's see how you're at all of them no <laughs> this is my nightmare <laughs> i'll just like hover at the doorway for all of them it won't be distracting to the speaker at all you know there's a there's a conference in uh norway there's it actually two of them one of them is called java zone the other one is uh ndc oslo and they have i don't know if you've ever have you ever been to them no, I haven't. But are you going to say that they have the, the headphones yes. thing? Yeah. So, that... they've, yeah, they've got oh this big place. Um, like we had a Kotlin Conf with the overflow room, but they basically have this uh, grades where you can sit and you have like eight large monitors in front of you and you have headphones and you can switch channels. So you, effectively, you could kind of attend all talks at the same time. As an audience member, that sounds like it would probably be good. As a speaker, that's my worst Sucks. nightmare. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I can't imagine not being able to kind of form that rapport with the audience. Because I feel like if they don't laugh at my jokes, I just wither, you know, like a little wilting flower. Yeah. Oh, I remember once I was giving a talk at, uh, at a conference in Budapest and they had sound issues. So what they did was that in the room I was, they gave everyone a headphone and myself a headphone. Oh, my gosh. And it was like I was, you know, I was telling a joke and there was one person going. <laughs> but of course, you know, <laughs> it's not contagious, right? So no. it's like oh God, I was face palming so many times. <laughs> Never again. I think we should... We should let this be a, a lesson that if your speaking style relies on humor, you you are going to run into some bad situations, as yeah. both of us have found out. Yeah, I, I was never invited again to that conference. <laughs> it's not it's not always applicable to to other people. I think. Mm -hmm. Oh well, doesn't matter. We'll keep trying. Yeah, my mother did say stick to speaking, not to comedy. But anyway. Oh. <laughs> Your mom sounds like a strong woman. I yeah. like it. In fact, no jokes aside, she, I, I wanted to uh, be a pilot and, and she said to me, no, like, you know, I mean, she didn't object, but she's like, I really don't want you spending all your life in airplanes. I'm like, I'll show you. I'll show you. <laughs> Joke is on you. I know. Cool. Oh, so um, just going back to the level stuff, uh, the other day I was also talking to someone and we we crossed on this topic of, of level. And again, we, you need to take into account that like one thing is for you to submit a talk, which is introduction to the standard library, for instance, yeah, uh, which might stand a lower chance at this stage. Mm -hmm. But another one is introduction to graphic programming with Kotlin, yes. right? which is completely valuable, right? And yes. because generally everyone that's a Kotlin conf is not going to be advanced uh, graphic programmers with the exception oh. of Roman. Exactly. Um, <laughs> so, you know, it's the introduction is also obviously very much in line with what type of topic we're talking about. Right. Yeah, 
Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um, the a, a good CFP tip and trick is, or I, I don't know, for me at least, if you are going to submit an intro to standard library or something like that i wish well i guess it is public people can read the way that Wynne did hers but you'll notice that it's not just i'm going to talk about this it's here are the specific things we're going to go through and and here's why and what you're going to take away from it and so i think as you do talks like that it's really beneficial to set yourself apart by uh, saying what people will learn if you're going to do some of the more mainstream ones. <clears throat> so for graphics, I think everybody except for Roman knows nothing about it. So you can say, hey, I'm going to talk to you about graphics. And you get a little bit more mileage off of that because people just say, oh, yeah, I, I don't know that. So any intro is great. But if you're doing intro to standard library and as a attendee of the conference, people think, well, I already know uh, the apply function is this talk for me, that's when your description and the body of your CFP becomes really important if somebody already has a little bit of overlap with the area that you're talking about. Because you want to be able to make sure that the people who don't know what you're talking about, the parts of the standard library that you're talking about end up in your talk, and the ones who maybe are familiar with that uh, have the chance to go to another one. And so the, the detail gets to be a little bit more important in abstracts like that, in my experience. Yes. And what about in regards to number of abstracts? Because what I've noticed uh, this year and to an extent last year as well is that many people just submitted one talk. And there were yeah. some people that submitted like 20 talks. But overall, it was the ratio of sessions per unique speakers was mostly one to one, right? Yep. So this is a thing that I think a lot of seasoned speakers know, but um, others may not always feel is okay. It's totally okay to submit more than one abstract. And by totally okay, I mean, if I were not uh, a conference organizer and the rest of the conference organizers were not going to hate me for saying this, I would say you should always submit more than one. So it just, the the probability and statistics work out for you. If, if one is not exactly what the committee is looking for, then the second one might be. It can help diversify your risk. And a lot of people are doing this. It's not rude to do. It's not um, some like breaking of taboo. There are a lot and a lot of people who are submitting more than one CFP. And a lot of times we turn down three or four. Well, that's an extreme case. There was someone, I think, who submitted five and we turned down the first three or four. But the the fourth one was one we really, really loved and we, we ended up accepting it. And so we as uh, people reading the abstracts, I do mine blind. I won't even know that it's from you um, until after I've accepted it. And so it's just multiple abstracts for you to get in front of a committee and have a chance to get accepted. Yep, and very good point on the blind part um, because I also practice that as well. Yeah. So I guess it's worth noting, though, that um, the conference organizers will take into account after they, they choose CFPs who's giving them. So if you submit four and you're a really, really great abstract writer and all four uh, 
they want to accept. Most conference organizers that I know of will only choose one, or if they really want you to do two, they'll reach out by email to make sure that's okay. So don't worry about submitting multiples and then having to give all of those talks because uh, you know a conference organizer should really work with you on that. And in my experience, we'll usually only choose their favorite of your talks if you have more than two that they're interested in. Yep. And and to clarify the points, I mean, I, I initially do a first round of kind of blind reviews. And then, of course, we dig into to the more details of the speaker because a lot of that also influences, right? Which is you yes, know, yes. What, what their speciality is, what their focus is, etc. And talking about that, like we would love to have new speakers as well as seasoned speakers. And it, it's always Absolutely. great to have a mix of both, right? And it's great to provide KotlinConf as a platform for people to initiate their speaking experience. So what would you recommend that a new speaker would do in trying to increase their chances a little bit of getting accepted? Yeah, so one pattern that we have, at least for, for KotlinConf, is that we, we do know that we want new speakers to have the platform. And in order to de-risk that for the conference itself, to make sure that we're keeping um, the quality bar really high, one, one thing we do is we try to find YouTube videos of people speaking. So maybe it was just at a meetup, or maybe it was just a, a vlog channel, but just to get a sense of your stage presence, even if you haven't presented before, that can be really, really helpful to make us more confident that it's it's a good um, a good CFP to accept, and that when you get on a stage in front of hundreds of people, you'll be happy to to have that opportunity and be able to make the most of it. So, if you are someone who has not spoken at a conference before, but maybe you have some other recorded content, it would be really helpful to link to it just so we can we can take a peek at that. Um, and it's not all or nothing, I should clarify. So it's not we would look at your vlog and say, oh, they're not good speakers, we're going to pass. What happens actually is someone usually had to will take a look at it and say, oh, I really like this CFP. I think we can work with them on XYZ. And then we'll reach out and say, you know, here, here's the help that we can, we can give you. So I think that may be unique to KotlinConf, but in the KotlinConf case, if you have any links to recordings that you do, it would be awesome to include those. Yes. And, and to be clear, like we have had first time speakers at KotlinConf in the two years in the past and to the extent possible and within the resources that we have, we're welcome to, you know, uh, help speakers, newcomers to try and uh, improve in, in what they can. Unfortunately, at this point, we haven't really offered any kind of coaching prior to the conference. Yeah. But I, I, I'm also a little bit on the side of, you know, I think that it really doesn't work that much. I mean, there's a certain level of do's and don'ts that you can kind of tell people to do. Uh, but I'm not sure how effective a one hour session or two hour session before a conference is going to be for someone, right? Especially if yeah. if you give them feedback that ends up demotivating them because while you're trying to be constructive, uh, they feel like, oh dear, they don't like this, they don't like that, I've only got a couple of hours to fix it, what am I gonna do, right? 
Yes, absolutely. I agree. But I, I would say that this conference committee is one of the most open and welcoming ones I've ever worked on. So if you're a new speaker, this is probably one of the best places you can submit a talk um, because people are just incredibly open to that during the review process. And I think everybody I've worked with on KotlinConf has been rooting for new speakers and trying to find ways to to include them. So it's incredibly heartwarming and and just really a, a good and uplifting environment to submit a new CFP. Yep. So any thoughts wrapping up in terms of top five tips of what they should do or shouldn't do? Are we going to do a rapid fire round? I want to start with one of the, the don'ts. You were talking about do's and don'ts. I feel like one of the don'ts is if you're going to say something really uh, inflammatory, it should be with a purpose. So don't say inflammatory things, CFPs, just for the sake of it. For instance, if your entire CFP is Java sucks, uh, that's going to be a little difficult for the conference organizers to review. <laughs> um, if you want to say something kind of edgy and you have a point to it, then I think you can make that work. But it, it behooves all of us, I think, if we have some some level of, of civility in our, in our CFPs. Yep, agree. And much the same way, don't. Con don't let your talk consist of just bashing any other technology or any kind of comparison like that in, in yes. the same sense, right? Um, yes. So do, uh, I would say do take time and work on your abstracts and don't leave it to the last minute. Oh, that was easy. Yes, that's a good one. Um, if you did do, I'll do another don't. I think don't make CFPs uh, sales pitches. So if you're doing cool work at a company, that'll come through on stage, I promise you. Uh, other people will think your company is cool without, without doing a product pitch. Uh, so if you're using your CFP and you're mentioning your company's name four or five times, it's a really good indicator that you may be too focused in on, on your own company and maybe not focused in enough on what attendees will take away. Yep. And I think there's a whole series of like uh, do's and don'ts around how to do a presentation in terms of the slides and like putting the logos, as you say, on each slide and stuff like that. I recommend the book actually by uh, Neil Ford and Matthew Mc Matthew McConnell, I think it is. It's called Pre uh, Presentation Anti Patterns uh, or oh, Presentation Patterns, which which is which talks a lot about that. Cool. Well, we've got to wrap up, Christina. It's been awesome speaking to you. It's been so fun to catch up to you yep. or catch up with you. I guess to you is also a thing we can do. Hello, Wednesday morning. <laughs> you ran across the country. How are you not going to catch up to me? I can't, I can't even run up the stairs without being like, <gasps> I need a break. I need to you lie know, down. You'd be surprised though, because that was, that was years ago. I don't do that anymore. And now I also sit on the fifth floor and I take the stairs every day and it never gets easier. I'm always at the top of the stairs with my hands on my knees, like gasping for breath. <laughs> it's a very professional look. I'll, I'll tell you that. But we will hopefully um, see each other soon. So absolutely. I'm looking forward to I will it. We'll do a race. No, we won't. <laughs> oh my God, please let's. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, let's not. <laughs>